All right, good, good, good. Can everybody hear me? Raise your digital hand if you can hear me. All right, good. Fantastic. Well, here we are again on a Sunday in quarantine. I don't know if I like that sound of that very much, but I guess it's kind of the reality for now. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to continue our study that we began a few weeks ago on the Lord's Prayer. And I think what we're finding so far is that um, this is an appropriate word for us here and now in our current circumstance. And so we're going to continue uh, this study. Here we are, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 says this, Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's where our focus is today. <clears throat> hallowed be your name. I came across an article <clears throat> this week that I want to share with you. The title of the article is, uh, When Religion is Dangerous to Your Health. And the article is essentially an interview uh, with uh, Jeff Levin, who is an epidemiologist in terms of his background. He's a professor at Baylor University. Um, he's got a book out that's just come out recently um, that's all about the intersection between spirituality and healing. So it deals with issues of science and faith and medicine and faith and all of that. Um, and so he, he was interviewed along these lines about how religion has been known to both heal and to harm. And in particular, as it's relevant right now, we've seen both sides of that during the current uh, pandemic. Here's, here's one of the quotes from uh, Levin. He says that faith is a positive force when it motivates people to think outside of themselves and to be of service. When it makes people strike out at others and look for demons to blame, it's doing a great disservice. Another quote uh, from the good doctor in the article, he says, honestly, we've seen both. There are terrible messages from the pulpit warning about Chinese immigrants. And on, and on the other side, some people are acting incredibly compassionately and ethically. Then the interviewer asked this question. He says, the Jews were held up as scapegoats during the Black Plague. And these days we're seeing something similar with Asians and, Asians Americans, and Asian Americans. Why is this idea so persistent? And here's how Levin responds. Levin is Jewish, by the way. He comes from a long line of rabbis in his family, apparently. Um, he says this, People need to lash out to have someone to blame when they feel <clears throat> that God has abandoned them. They think it must be someone's fault. And then the article concludes with a lengthy quote from Dr. Levin, and I quote it here in its entirety. <clears throat> Throughout history, personal faith and religious institutions have been a great force for good motivating selfless behavior and compassion and magnificent works of service to others. At the same time, religious institutions and leaders have been sources of divisiveness and hate, and religious movements have existed throughout history which have targeted outsiders for destruction. Thousands of studies by now have shown that expressions <coughs> of religious faith or spirituality are associated on average with all kinds of benefits for our well-being. Less depression, less anxiety, less longevity. I mean, even longevity in some studies. And sociologists and psychologists and economists and political scientists have documented the other ways that religion or faith has impacted humanity 
for the good. But at the same time, so many people have been harmed by religion. Emotionally abused, disfellowshipped or rejected, unfairly judged, left feeling diminished rather than uplifted. It's hard to convince some people that religion is <clears throat> intrinsically a positive force when they experience themselves or their loved ones being abused or tortured or even killed in the name of religion. Honestly, he says, religion isn't a single unitary thing. It's not all good or all bad. It's better thought of as a domain or a dimension of life, a vessel that can be filled up with goodness, that can nurture and comfort and even heal, but can also be filled with sludge and sickness that can do vile things to people and ruin lives. Isn't that all too true? Just what he's describing, even in rather general terms. It's just so true. And of course, this, I'm going to call it an either-or, this dynamic, this is really nothing new, in fact. Um, during his ministry, Jesus was surrounded by people who thought they might be doing God a favor by committing violence up to and including killing. And eventually, they did, in fact, kill Jesus. And in doing so, were convinced that they were doing God a great favor service. And, you know, all the while, again and again throughout his ministry, we find Jesus directly confronting and directly challenging both sides um, uh, of this, both the destructive practice of religion and the image of God um, that accompanies that kind of destructive religious practice. And so today, we are entering into a very long conversation that has spanned at least from the dusty roads of Palestine in the first century with Jesus and his ministry clear through to the halls of Baylor University and Dr. Levin, but actually well beyond even that broad span. And so with all of that in mind, we now turn to this perhaps <coughs> best known of all prayers, and this, let's call it the second line of the prayer, hallowed be your name. We need to begin with kind of a sidebar a little bit um, and talk about in the, um, in the original language. Now, this is like full-on full nerd uh, style here, but I think there's something to be gained from it. It's important to recognize that uh, as translators must do, the, the structure of these three phrases that come after our Father in heaven, we have these lines about name, kingdom, and will. The language structure in Matthew's original Greek is actually very different and I think somewhat significantly different uh, than, than how it's usually brought over into English. And so to illustrate that, I have on your notes, if you have that, and I'll, I'll read it, I have what I'm characterizing as a painfully literate, uh, literal translation. Now, we, we don't speak this way in English, but what I'm trying to do here is show how the word order in Greek um, might, be, might be significant. Here's how it actually goes in a painfully literal translation. It's this. Be hallowed the name of you. 
become the kingdom of you and be done the will of you. And then that transitional line is actually reversed in English, typically for us. In Matthew's original Greek, it is, as in heaven, so also on earth. And then you have the transition to the second half of the prayer, which deals with um, um, bread, debt, and temptation. So now, let's just kind of gather ourselves a little bit. The English here in the Lord's Prayer is most often translated in the passive voice in some way. Um, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, may your name be hallowed, and some kind of deal like that. But notice, and here's the reason, my reason for bringing it out. Notice here in Matthew's original Greek, um, these are not, well, uh, these are not requests per se. They are commands. Be hallowed, the name of you. Uh, become the kingdom of you. This is a command. Make your name holy. Now, just to say what we all know, we don't ordinarily pray like this. We would usually form our requests to God in prayer, well, as requests, <laughs> um, as even humble requests at that, right? Like when we call upon God as our Father, we would usually take a more humble, a more passive kind of word choice in our request to God, like, like may it be so, or we ask for such and such. But the point here is that in Matthew's original Greek, these lines aren't structured that way. These lines are structured as commands, specifically, be hallowed the name of you. Now, before we go any further, we need to take a minute and deal with this word uh, hallowed. And let me just say that, you know, the English word hallowed uh, has had a long career, which has basically by now virtually come to an end uh, these days, with only one exception. Every year, the old English word hallowed uh, comes out of retirement uh, and actually comes into our common usage these days, and that is on that one fall night or day uh, in October that we call Halloween, right? Now, you may be aware of this, the, the word Halloween is actually the squishing together of three words, which, which began originally as three words. Um, those three words are all Hallow's Eve, and it is the day or the night that comes before the next day, which is on the church calendar as All Saints Day. So, All Hallow's Eve is the day that comes before All Saints Day. Now, does that help us with discerning the meaning of the word hallow? Yes, it actually it does, right? Because what we gather from that is that um, hallow means saints. And so the verb to hallow means to sanctify or to make holy or to make saintly. Okay, so now that helps. And at the same time, it doesn't help, right? Because look what we have now. We have a really odd command. We're speaking to God as our Father, our Father in heaven, uh, make your name holy. <laughs> so so this, is, this is rather odd. What in the world could it possibly mean for God to make God's name holy? I mean, isn't God already quite holy? I mean, isn't God's name already utterly holy? Look at it like this. 
Ordinarily, we determine or assess the holiness of a thing, well, based on its proximity to God, right? We, we would describe a person or a saint as holy because we assess that that person is extraordinarily close to God, and so we'd say that person is holy. Or, or a place, we, we would, if, we, if we consider that, that um, God is extraordinarily fond of a particular place, we would then might call that place a holy place, or even sacred text and so on. So, you know, how, you know, it begs the question, how could God's name ever be anything other than holy, right? Like, isn't God holy, like, by definition? I mean, even in the Psalms, and we're not going to take time to, to go through these, but uh, you may be familiar, and certainly it doesn't take very long to become familiar. Um, over and over in the Psalms, we are invited to bless God's holy name, right? We're, we're called upon in the Psalms again and again uh, as the people of God to bless his holy name. And so it's ordinarily presumed that God's name is already holy. And so all that to say, this is just an odd line to encounter in this prayer. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy. What are we to make of this. So this morning, I'd like for us to take this step by step. First, name. What do we do with name? What is, what is the meaning of name? When we say God's name, what does that mean? Well, in short, <clears throat> in the Bible, name means reputation or character or how one is known. Uh, so, so God's name means God's reputation, his character, what God is known to be like, right? And this is important for us to slow down and get our minds around this, but it, it, this is accessible to us because we actually do have this distinction in, in English as well, right? Like, like my name is how I'm identified. Um, it's, it's how you call me for dinner. When you call me for dinner, call me by my name. Um, on the other hand, in English as well, the word my name could be used to refer to my reputation or how I'm known or the content of my character, as in we might say or you might say, um, I don't want to do anything that might damage my good name, right? And when you, mean, when you say it that way, you don't mean my good name, John, or my good name, Sue. You mean my good reputation, my character, how I am known, right? So, so we have that in English, so this is not all that difficult for us. But when we say God's name, we mean specifically his character. So question, what can we learn about the character of God based upon asking about the name of God? Now, at this point, we have to pause and say, now some of you, you may have uh, gone through a Bible study where we study the various names of God that are found throughout Scripture, and there are, by the way, many of them. Uh, this, this is a rich Bible study, and it can be very rewarding if you haven't ever done that kind of thing. But um, I just want to say, sometimes we go through that entire Bible study, studying all these various names of God found throughout Scripture, and we kind of miss the point. You know, sometimes we go through that entire Bible study, identifying all these different names of God, and we sort of get the idea that these are all the different ways that you can call God for dinner. But that's not <laughs> the purpose of that study. The purpose of that study, the various names of God found in Scripture are, these are the various ways that the ancients um, have reached for 
names in order to describe the character of God, right? So God is, you know, he is Jehovah Rapha, the God, our healer. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He is El Shaddai, uh, the God who's more than enough. These are some examples. Um, this is good, good, rich, rich stuff. But today, we're going to be um, we're going to be narrower than that and more pointed, focused than that. Um, where I want to go with this question about God's name is we're gonna we're gonna try to anchor ourselves in the what I'm going to call the watershed story for the people of Israel as it concerns the name of God and how God's character flows out from that. Um, that is, we're going to look at the story found in Exodus where, you know, Moses has had his, uh, he's born in Egypt, raised in Egypt, had his run in with, um, with uh, Egyptian slave masters. And so he, Moses flees to the wilderness and he's tending sheep and he encounters a burning bush, right? That, that whole scene. So he goes to check out the bush that is burning but is not consumed. And he approaches the bush, and God speaks to him out of the bush, right? Well, in that story is found this line that is really the bedrock of bedrock as it relates to um, the ancient people of God understanding the name of God. And it's, we find this, Exodus 3, verse 13. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thankfully, he didn't stop there. <laughs> he said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So when Moses asks the question directly, what is your name? The answer he gets is, I am who I am. Now, uh, we just got to say, that both is and is not an answer <laughs> to Moses' question, right? And, and many saints and mystics have basically uh, taken away from this answer to Moses by God that ultimately God is unnameable. I am who I am. <clears throat> I am that I am. And yet, this conversation doesn't start or end there with that line. In fact, there's more that is said in this entire conversation. And I just want to back up a little bit to catch the context for what we just read. Back up beginning with verse 7. The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What is God saying here? What is God saying here to Moses, not only about Moses' mission, 
but, but where is it that Moses' mission is being born out of? Well, it's being born out of the character of God. God, he's saying, is the deliverer of the oppressed. That is God's name. This is God's own self-description of his reputation, his identity, and his character. Now, from this day forward, from this moment that we're reading forward, God is known to Israel as the deliverer. He is the deliverer of the oppressed. He is the rescuer. He is the liberator. His, this is his identity. This is his character. This is how he is known. This is why he tells Moses, tell them that I am has sent me to you. Why? Because the I am is the deliverer. He is the rescuer. He is the redeemer. That is the liberator from bondage and oppression. This is who God is. This is his identity for the ancient people of Israel. Okay. So, all right. So, 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 so God's name, in essence, in, in terms of its, its central core, his name is deliverer. Okay. So, question then. What does it mean to make God's name holy? This is the second question in unpacking this line from the Lord's Prayer. Be hallowed, be your name, or make your name holy. Okay, so now we've taken one step, and we understand that God's name refers to his reputation or his character, let's say. All right, that's a, that's a positive step. But now, in order to, to tackle how it is that we might go about making God's name holy, again, this presents us with a, a little bit of a problem. Because what exactly is the content of God's holiness. What does it mean or look like for God's name to be made holy? Now, this is actually, well, it can be, a significant problem. It's not a significant problem for you because I'm here. You're welcome. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I, let me just say it this way. Uh, people of all religions consider the name of their God to be holy, right? Um, so for us to say that God's name is holy, so far all we've said is exactly what other worshipers of other gods say about the name and character of their gods, right? The worshipers of Zeus consider the name of Zeus to be holy. Considered, I should say. I don't know if there are any worshipers of Zeus left, but uh, we'll say past tense. The worshipers of Jupiter would say, uh, they would consider the name of Jupiter to be holy. And clearly the character of God, let me just say, clearly the character of God is not the same as the character of Zeus or Jupiter, right? Or Athena or Nike or Molech or you name it, Mammon, right? God's character is not the same as the character of those other gods. And so for us to say that God is holy, this in and of itself, sorry to say, uh, doesn't really, I mean, it gets us a step, but it doesn't get us all that far. E even, honestly, even the root word translated into English as holy, um, in the literal sense, the word means separate. It's a spatial term. Uh, and so again, that's helpful, but it's only helpful just so far. Um, it's a spatial term, and, but now it's clearly being used in a metaphorical 
sense. And so still, it doesn't tell us much about the actual content of God's holiness. And so we still have this problem. What precisely is the content of God's holiness? What does it mean for God, for this God, to be called holy? So how do we, how do we address this problem? And I want to suggest that we follow the story. We follow the story from where we began. And don't worry, we're not going to go through the whole Exodus story. We're just going to kind of fast forward. So we go from, uh, we go from Exodus 3, uh, go to Pharaoh, let my people go. We fast forward to that. Moses goes to Pharaoh. There's the whole plague thing plays out. Pharaoh relents. The uh, Israelites escape through the Red Sea, all that. They get out into the wilderness after they are liberated by God. And here we go. Leviticus chapter 19. Listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay, let's just pause right here. This is Leviticus 19. This section is known as the holiness codes and rightly so. Um, But listen to the framing of these divine commands, all right? You are, and in essence, what he's saying is, you are, or Moses, these people are, my now delivered, my rescued sons and daughters. I'm, I'm theirs, they're mine. I'm holy, and so this is how I want you to live as a reflection of my character, my identity, my name. This is how you guys, in other words, this is how you guys will make my name holy. Everybody see what's going on? Moses, I'm about to give some some instructions for how my sons and daughters are to carry themselves. And the, the root, the soil, the soil that these instructions uh, uh, flow from is my own holiness. Now, this, is, this is strong stuff. So these aren't, these aren't random ideas for what just what nice people do. These are rooted in the nature, the character of God. That's, that's what he's saying. Speak to all the congregation, speak to Israel, and say to them, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so what we have here, everybody, is an opportunity uh, to see these instructions. These are not conditions like do this or else. Uh, you know, these are not conditions to maintain God's favor or to maintain God's presence or, you know, clear these hoops and see if you can be good enough for, to continue to be my sons and daughters. No, you are my sons and daughters. I am your God. And now your life, your holiness is going to become a reflection of the divine holiness. Let's look at some examples then. Leviticus 19 verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. That is what you drop. Don't gather that. Uh, You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? When you go out, when, you're, when, you're, when your harvest is 
ripe and ready. And you go out to pick the harvest. Don't, don't pick it all. Don't, don't take it all and put it in baskets and go and consume it or trade it or whatever. No, 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 no. Leave, leave the edges. Leave the edges. Why? Uh, for the poor. Leave them for the poor. And even your grapes. Don't pick, don't pick all the grapes. Don't, don't pick all the grapes off the ground and, and all that. Don't strip your vineyard bare. Leave some, leave some, some grapes. Why? Leave them for the poor. And, and, and the alien, the, the, the foreigner, leave them there. But, but God, why, why would we do this? He says, because, because of me, because of my character. This is my style. You got to get to know me. I'm, I'm for the poor. I'm for the alien. Do these things. I'm holy. Your holiness, your conduct is going to be a reflection of my holiness, my character. Verse 13, you shall not defraud your neighbor, you shall not steal, and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. Pay him right then. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. We're going we're gonna to make special care. We're going to make special care for those who are the most vulnerable. You shall fear your God. Why is this? Because I and the Lord. Where does this kind of attitude and conduct come from? Toward the, the laborer, the deaf, uh, the blind. Where does this kind of special care, compassion, where does this come from? It, it comes from the character of God. This is who God is. Verse 33. When an alien resides with you in your land, a foreigner, an immigrant, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love, <laughs> you shall love the alien as yourself. Then he offers a bit of perspective. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Remember when you were right there under the Pharaoh's thumb? You were aliens. Now, once again, here we are again, this refrain that appears throughout the holiness codes. Why is this? Why conduct ourselves this way? Where is this rooted? He says it again. I am the Lord, your God. Why, why, why love the alien as ourselves? Why should we treat those of another tribe the same as we treat those in our own tribe? Why? Well, he says it right here. Because of me. Because that's my character. Because of my identity. I am the Lord, your God. And your holiness is to be a reflection of my holiness. Your character is to be a reflection of my character, my nature. In other words... Everybody, from start to finish, these are not given as conditions for divine favor or presence or blessing, as in do these things or else, or else I'll abandon you or else, or, you know, whatever. No, that's not what's being said here. What's going on here is that divine holiness is to be reflected in human holiness. How specifically? Well, if we could just kind of wrap these up thematically, it's what God is calling his people to do is to do what he does. He is known most essentially as the deliverer, 
the rescuer, the protector. And so he's inviting his people to reflect his holiness by what? Delivering those who are endangered, freeing those who are oppressed, and protecting those who are impoverished and most vulnerable. That's God's character, and therefore this is how his sons and daughters reflect his character and make his name holy. And let me just say, again, kind of another sidebar, but sometimes these instructions end with, I am the Lord your God, and sometimes these instructions end simply with, I am the Lord. Uh, does this matter? Is this a, just a super fine distinction? Um, I think maybe it does matter, and I think maybe it matters significantly. Um, Live this way because I am the Lord your God sounds like an instruction to the distinct and peculiar people of Israel who are the distinct and peculiar people of God among all the peoples, you know, other peoples on the earth. But on the flip side, an instruction that says, live this way because I am the Lord, period, uh, that suddenly sounds like a command that has all of humanity in view, right? Um, in other words, uh, the Lord, I am the Lord, is the Lord of all, all people everywhere. So live this way because I am the Lord, period. I'm the Lord of all. And of course, this either or, like are these specific commands for a specific people or do we have all of humanity uh, in view? And obviously that can be a complex question, but let me just say, this question becomes quite clear when you press rewind um, and go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? Because um, there we see, of course, that God is, in fact, the God of all. He is the God of all the earth. He is the God of all the people of all the earth. And this God even says as much when he introduces himself to Abraham, uh, makes what we know of as, as his covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. And we go, great. So there we get the distinctiveness of the people of Israel. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to bless you, uh, and through you, I'm going to bless, what does he say? I'm going to bless all the tribes of the earth through you. So, yes, Israel's distinctiveness, their peculiarness, if you want to say it that way, which I do, um, they are distinct, and yet their distinctiveness, their peculiarness was never for them exclusively. God always has had in view all the people of all the earth, all tribes. And the wideness in the heart of God breaks through even in these instructions found in Leviticus 19, where we've been. This wideness in the heart of God breaks through even in these instructions for living together. Live like this because I am the Lord. Full stop. Strong, strong stuff. And so, what do we see in these instructions? In summary, what we see is that divine holiness is reflected in human holiness and that content of that holiness is this extension of God's fundamental character. He is the deliverer of the oppressed, the protector of the vulnerable, the provider of the impoverished. What does it mean for us to make God's name holy? Think about the impact of this prayer. We pray it together. We pray it individually, but 
you know, you can pray the Lord's Prayer, well, you can pray the Lord's Prayer in solitude, but you never pray it alone. You're always play, praying this prayer with Christ's followers all over the world. So think about the impact of this. Make your name holy. Cause your kingdom to come. Cause your will to be done. Make your name holy. Cause your kingdom to come. Cause your will to be done. Over and over and over and over again. What's the impact of that? Well, I think, I think the intended impact is that eventually this gets down into your bones. And you begin to become the embodiment of these, and I'll say it, you become the embodiment. They are requests, don't get me wrong, but they're stated very, very strongly. They're stated almost with a, right? So eventually, eventually this gets down into your bones and, and you begin to become the embodiment of these command requests, say it that way. So, so this is why it becomes extremely important to understand specific, what does it mean to make God's name holy? Like, what is the content of that holiness? And I hope that this morning as we've gone through this, I hope this can become a helpful um, um, walkthrough to properly fill the content of God's holiness with God's actual character. Now, I want to say before... Moving on, uh, a final word about this, and we asked the broader question about what is the character of God, and therefore what does it mean to make God's name holy, I'll just say, you know, as Christians, we see the full self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. So far, what I've tried to do this morning in our study is I've tried to put our feet in the sandals of the first hearers of this prayer. And of course, in their case, they could only look back into Israel's story to gather the meaning of these poetic words. And so I've tried to, try to suggest what that process might have been like for them. But today, however, um, for us, we can look back not only into those ancient scriptures and stories, but we can also look back onto the story of Jesus himself, right? Uh, climaxing, of course, in his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, in which he was vindicated by God to be the very embodied expression of God and demonstrated to be God in the flesh. And so, for us, we can also quite plainly say that to make God's name holy is to embody and multiply the character of Christ in the earth. Make God's name holy. In conclusion this morning, I want to refer back to the observation that I made earlier about the fact that these are actually, in the original language, they are actually commands. And I've kind of pushed that um, a little bit in, in my remarks. Um, so I want to ask a question. Look, is that too bold? Is it too bold to, to kind of take that literal Greek construction and say, well, then what would it be like for us to bring that linguistic construction into English? Is it too bold uh, to do it that way? 
And I'll certainly acknowledge that most English Bible translation committees do indeed take the safer route. And they render these lines in the more humble tone of what's expected in a reverent prayer request. Most translation committees do that. They take these, in Greek, direct commands and convert them into the more expected, reverent, humble tone. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. That kind of thing. Uh, but not all. Not all English translators do that. Um, in fact, I begin with St. Eugene Peterson uh, in his message translation of the Bible. He has it like this. Reveal who you are. Isn't that great? Now, see, St. Eugene, he could have saved us this entire sermon this morning because he gets it quite right. This is, in fact, a very good rendering of the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Now, it still becomes important for us to get the question of God's character and identity right. But this is a very good rendering of Matthew's original Greek. And then also, some of you know that um, I'm a fan of the Common English Bible. It's a more recent uh, English translation. Uh, and, and, and they, too, carry a more active voice rendering of this line. They say it like this, our Father in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. That's, that's pretty good, pretty strong stuff. And then, as I've suggested, another way of understanding this would be something like, our Father in heaven, make your name holy. And what is the meaning of God's holiness? Well, he's a deliverer. He's a protector. He's a provider. He's a healer. His name, his character is that of loving justice, restorative righteousness. This is the character and identity of God. And this first request in this most well-known prayer is a request. And then ultimately, once it gets down into your bones, we become the embodiment of this desire, this persistent insistence to make God's character known, his true identity known in the world. So I just want to say back to the article that I referred to. I think that in essence, <coughs> the question that we've dealt with this morning makes all the difference in that either or of what Dr. Levin was um, laying out. I, and I want to say, it's not just a challenge for us, but I would call it an invitation. Will our faith be a source of life for the world around us? Or will our faith be toxified and warped to the point where it becomes a source of death? condemnation, etc. Am I going to, to participate in the scapegoating of others that's going on all too commonly in our culture, even among religious folk? Or am I going to be a healer, a protector, a rescuer? And what I'm suggesting is this, everybody. Once you become convinced of the true character of God as seated in the ancient scriptures, as we've seen this morning, and then as fully revealed in Christ. Once you become convinced of this, it becomes only normal to fall on the side of healing, as described by Dr. Levin in the article who was interviewed. 
And not only, not just during a pandemic, but always at all times in every way that we can, in big and small ways, embodying and portraying and conveying the character of God as deliverer, protector, provider, healer, his character. So that's our prayer. God, make your name holy. Make your name holy. Do it through us here and now again and again and again. Amen. Well, God bless you. Once again, we miss you. We miss being together. Um, we hope everybody is staying safe and staying healthy. And uh, We look forward to being together again soon, okay? We're going to sing a closing song, and, uh, and we'll be dismissed, okay? We love you.